Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of the kings, of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Our Father in heaven, we come before you now in this moment as your word is opened before our eyes, as it is opened before me. And I ask that you would be with me, that you would be with my mind, that you'd be with my heart and with my mouth, that you would help me to understand and to be able to interpret these verses well in a way that puts all of the, the focus on Jesus. He gets all of the glory, and that it is for the good of your people. May you be with my mouth. May I be able to to preach these words with clarity. And being with my heart, Father, help me to preach these verses with with passion. And also ask that you would be with those who are sitting before me, those who are listening. May you enable them to be receptive of your word, not only to hear it, but to do it, to be doers of the Word. And in in doing your Word, being delightful doers of the Word. May their treasure be found in your Word, in Christ. Father, may you bless this time together. May your Word be lifted up. And again, may you receive all of the glory, all of the praise. And may it be for the good of your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That was a question Jesus asked His listeners during His life and ministry. We looked at that question a couple weeks ago. And as you hear that question again this morning, I want you to specifically think of gaining the world in terms of 
all of the pleasure, all of the happiness, and all of the joy that it can offer. So what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and all of its pleasures, all of its joys, all of its possessions, all of its happiness? What does it profit a man? Sex, money, power, possessions, and a host of other things. What if you could have all of it and enjoy it whenever you want it? Would it make you happy? Would you be satisfied? And most importantly, would it last? Would the happiness, would the joy, would the satisfaction that all of those things could bring, would they last? The world answers that question and they say yes. And by world, I mean anyone who does not follow Christ. Anyone who seeks to find their delight, their fulfillment, their satisfaction in this world. That's who I mean when I reference the world. All of those who look for gain in this world and not in Christ. So the world hears those questions and they say, Yes, that is what we want. We want the world and what it can offer and as much as we can get while we can get it. The culture that we live in today is immersed in that thinking. America, the American dream. We are immersed in the thinking that if you desire something, then you should have it. And you should hold nothing back in your pursuit of obtaining that. I mean, you desire it, it's there for a reason, so you should have it. You're not going to be happy unless you have this thing. That is the the thinking of our culture today. They say you have one life, so enjoy it before it's over. You have one life, enjoy it, they say. Now I realize that there may be some who don't necessarily think like that. They may not be attracted to the life of the rich and famous, you could say. They may instead be completely satisfied with their little slice of the world. They may think to themselves, you know, I just want to experience a little pleasure. Just a little bit. Just give me enough so I can have a little pleasure here and a little pleasure there. That's it. That's all I want. Is that too much to ask for? But at the end of the day, Is there really a difference between those two types of people? Is there a difference between the person who seeks all that they can get from the world and the person who just seeks from little? Who just wants just a little bit? Just a little piece of the world. Just just enough so I can have some pleasure here. Is there a difference? According to Jesus, there isn't a difference. He says in Luke chapter 11, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's from chapter 11, verse 23. And so what Jesus is saying there is if you are not following me, if your delight is not in me, if your satisfaction is not found in me, then you're against me. Because what you want is in the world. What you want is found 
under the sun. Your gain, your satisfaction, your pleasures are found here. So there's no middle ground. Jesus leaves no middle ground. There is no, well, you know, I'm not really seeking my all of my satisfaction in Christ. But at the same time, I'm not really grabbing for all of the world either. I'm just I'm kind of in the middle. You know, I like Jesus, but I just want to be neutral. But there is no neutral ground. You're either with Him, finding your delight in Him, or you're with the world. And your pleasure and your satisfaction comes from there. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're seeking satisfaction from much or from little in this world. Because in reality, it's all the same. The reality of the matter is that it is all the same. Because what you are desiring is found under the sun and not above the sun where Christ is. And so the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, within these verses seeks to show us that reality in the starkest way that he possibly can. The reality that if you seek satisfaction and gain from the pleasures under the sun, you're only going to be left with sorrow. So if you're searching for your satisfaction here, the preacher means to show you the reality that in the end, it's all going to turn to bitterness and you're going to be left with sorrow. So as we again read through this, these, these verses, this man's experience, let's allow him to teach us, to lead us again and again into the paths of truth. Let us again allow this man to paint reality before our eyes. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now after watching the preacher's epic failure in testing wisdom last week, we might expect him just to give up and go home and you know try to find something else to do. He has tested wisdom. He's walked away empty-handed. And so we would expect him to say, you know, I'm done with this little experiment. I'm done with this quest. I failed so badly last time. I'm done. But he doesn't do that. No, this is just the beginning, however. There is still much to test and there's still much to observe. And so the preacher walks away empty-handed from wisdom, but yet he walks out the door of wisdom and he walks straight into the door of pleasure. And he allows us to again... Uh, to see the inner conversation that's going on within himself. He says, come now. Come now. That's what he's saying to himself. He's failed over here, but now he's, he's, he's encouraging himself in a way. He's kind of, he's picking himself up. He's motivating himself. Come now. Let's, let's test pleasure. Wisdom may not have gave me any profit, any lasting gain, but now let's try pleasure. He says, I will test you with pleasure, speaking to his his body, his, his flesh, himself. I will test you with pleasure. So his next experiment, you could say, is to test pleasure itself. Pleasure itself, we are about to see, is going to be put under the microscope. It's about to be put on or in the spotlight for observation. He's about to test pleasure itself. What profit 
what gain does it have to yield into this world under the sun? The pleasures of the world, what do they have to gain? In the second part of verse 1 and in the first part of verse 2, the preacher again is very quick to summarize that he comes back empty-handed. He's very quick to show you that the chase is not worth it. But let's keep moving. Let's not spend a whole lot of time there because we're going to look at these verses closer when he actually describes to us the result of his experiment in verse 11. So in verse 3, the preacher begins to list off all of the things that he did in order to seek pleasure. He has this long list of all of the things that he acquired for himself, all of the things that he had that he found pleasure in. And the first thing that he names is drink, alcohol, wine. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now as he says that he gives himself to wine. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. I don't think that the preacher is talking about drunkenness here. Because as he says, my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. So it's not that the preacher drank himself to the point that he could no longer think, that he could no longer reason with himself, that he had forgotten the the very reason why he was doing this in the first place. Yes, he gave himself over to wine, but at the same time, he is still very conscious about what's going on. He knows that he's testing these things. So this is just not all-out drunkenness. He's not drinking himself to the point to where he just passes out and doesn't know what's going on. No, his wisdom is still with him. But this raises a question, doesn't it? What kind of wisdom is this man talking about? Because if it was the wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord, then he wouldn't have to go about all of these tests in order to find out what was good for the children of man to do. Because all he had to do was just go to God's Word, seek the face of God, and he would have received the answer. But he doesn't do that. So what kind of wisdom do we have on display here? What we see here is man's wisdom, his reason, his understanding, his knowledge at its finest. That's the wisdom that we have on display here. Because the word wisdom used in the Bible is a very broad term. It not only refers to the wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord, but it also refers to knowledge, and intelligence, skill, like in a trade. So it's a very broad term. And so the way that it's being used here is in Intelligence, knowledge, the gift of knowledge that the Lord gave to the preacher. So he is using his gift that God has given him, his knowledge, his superior intellect, like no one had ever seen before, to try and find what's good for the children of man to do during their short life. He is seeking to find out what's good for you to do in and of Himself. What He can find out by experience, by testing things. And so His list goes on. 
And I'm not going to read through all of these verses again. You can just scan as I read through this list that the preacher uh, gives. So beginning in verse 4, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. The preacher made gardens and parks and filled them with all kinds of exotic trees. He made pools so that he could water the forest that he made. He bought and had many slaves and servants that waited on him hand and foot. He gathered for himself treasure, both silver and gold. He had entertainment, singing, dancing, and comedians to make him laugh. And the last thing that he mentions in his list is all the women that he acquired for himself for sexual pleasure. Because that's what the word concubine means. It's, it's actually a difficult word to translate into English because the word really means the term breast. It's what the word literally means. And so it's a, a crude word for women. So concubine is a woman who was used just for sexual pleasure in a very crude way. That's what a concubine was. And here in a moment I'm going to read some passages that describe at length the details of just how many women this man actually had and enjoyed. So if you would, I'm going to read through these rather quickly. Uh, the First Kings, the book of First Kings. Because in 1 Kings, the author basically gives us a, a walking commentary of this list that Solomon names off. He names off all of the treasures that he had, all of the possessions, his great wealth, all of those things. So I just want to look very quickly at these passages and just describe to you a little bit further just what Solomon had, the possessions that he enjoyed, the pleasures that he had at his disposal, that he could enjoy whenever he wanted. First passage comes from 1 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. And this is really just focusing on the feast that this man had, that he enjoyed, the food that he was fed with. The author of 1 Kings writes, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. And if you look at the bottom of your page, in your Bible, there should be a note that says a core was about six bushels or 220 liters. So that's, how, that's about how much a core was. So this man, for one day, had 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. That's one day that him and all of his house was fed with. They slaughtered that many animals just so they could feed his house for one day. I mean, you add that up for 365 days and just, I mean, that is unbelievable the amount of possessions as far as food and livestock that this man had. Let's go on to 1 Kings chapter 10. This is specifically looking at the wealth of Solomon, the, the gold and the silver that this man had acquired for himself. Beginning in verse 14, the author again writes, 
Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Now again, if you look at the bottom of your page in your Bible, you should have a note that says a talent was about 75 pounds. 75 pounds. You multiply that by 666. I added it up earlier this morning. It's about 50,000 pounds of gold. Just gold in a year. 50,000 pounds about this man had in a year. So you add that up over a few years. He makes Fort Knox look like kids play and all the gold that's in there. Well, let's continue. That's just the beginning. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The man sat on a throne laid with pure gold. The finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrest while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. Every cup that the man drank from was pure gold. Again, that's incomprehensible. That is unbelievable. you imagine if you had in your house all your drinking vessels, all your cups were just of gold? I mean, you'd be putting those things aside. Don't touch them. You know, those are just for display only. But this man just drinks out of them like they're nothing. This was nothing to him. So all of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. You know, what's silver? You know, what what does silver have to do with anything? We want gold. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. He made silver look like a penny. You know, that's how we think of pennies. You could equate that to... You know, you find a penny on the ground, and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't even want to, you know, exert the energy to pick that thing up. Most of us, there may be a few of you that like to save your pennies. But anyway, so silver was of basically nothing. It was just like common. So silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships, uh, ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together... Well, let's stop there. We don't need to read the rest of that. So that just gives you an idea of the wealth and the possessions that this man had. It's crazy. Like no other king before. 
Again, He makes the powers of our day look like they're just you know, playing house almost. Playing kingdom. You know, they're like kids with imagination. That's what His riches, that's what His power, His reign makes all of the other rulers look like. And the last passage that I'm going to refer to is 1 Kings chapter 11. This is referring to the women specifically that Solomon had acquired for himself. So back in their day, with power came great numbers of women. The more power you had, the more women you had. So how many wives, how many women did Solomon have? Chapter 11, verse 3, the author says, He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women in all. I was thinking about that this morning as I was looking at that passage. If that man was to sleep with one woman a day, it would take him almost three years to sleep with every one of them. Almost three years just to make it through all of them. Now, if you remember, this is also the sin that eventually, towards the end of his life, led Solomon's heart astray. These women drew him away from the Lord. And it seems now in Ecclesiastes, at the very end of his life, Solomon is looking back on all of that, and he's really seeing, as he's about to tell us, just how vain all of those things really were. His pursuit of riches, of women, of possessions. Let's keep going. So at the end of all of that, the list that he names off, you could pretty much say that the preacher had created a a mini-world for himself. He created, in the words of Derek Kidner, he had created a world within a world. Solomon's own private paradise. And if you read through that list again and picture in your mind or think of the Garden of Eden and all of the language that's used for the Garden of Eden, it's almost like this man is trying to recreate that paradise and have it at his own personal disposal. But again, when you read through those verses, count how many eyes you see. He may have created a paradise, but it was was for his own selfish gain. There was no sharing in the midst of this. I made that. I made this. I acquired for myself this and that. I had also great possessions. I gathered for myself. I got this. I got that. This is a man's selfish pleasure or his selfish gain for pleasure. It's all about Solomon. In verse 9, he sums up, he, he summarizes all of this. He says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. He kept his heart from no pleasure. Whatever this man wanted, he got. And it was at his disposal. He could enjoy it whenever he wanted. He had the world, you could say, at his fingertips. This man was living the American dream, you could say, like no other. 
what you see on the front page of magazines. The world telling you to buy the biggest house you can, get the most acreage of land that you can, get the most possessions that you can, go on as many vacations as you possibly can. He'd be on the cover of GQ magazine, you could say. He's living the good life like no one else has ever lived it and like no one else can ever live it. He had possessions, he had wealth, he had drink, he had entertainment, he had sex, he had money, he had power, like no one else could ever imagine. He kept himself from no pleasure. And he tells us, I enjoyed all of it. You know, everything I sought, everything I acquired for myself, I got pleasure. I enjoyed all of those things. But that was his reward. He looked back and he says, that was my reward for all of my toil. But remember, he hasn't forgot why he's doing this. He hasn't forgot why he's acquiring all of these things. You know, why he set out to do these things in the first place. He says, also my wisdom remained with me. So now he steps back to take a good look at all that he has gained and what it is worth. So now he steps back. You know, he has his mini world before him, you could say. And he asks himself, Solomon, self, what profit have you actually gained from all of those things? So what does he say? Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he stands back. He looks at his little mini paradise. He looks at his little mini world that he has built. And what does he say? It's vanity. It's like a breath. He's like the man chasing after the wind. That's what his little world ends up being like. He's chasing the wind. Everything he had was like a breath. So much so, now going back to the beginning of, or the second part of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, he says, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? So much so that pleasure itself has become almost like it's pointless. You know, I have no use for you, pleasure. All the pleasures of the world that you can imagine, he's looking at it and he's saying to himself, what's the point? What's the point of me having that? It's, it has come to nothing. But why? Those are harsh words to use. Why? Why does the preacher say those things? Why all of a sudden does all of his worldly pleasure seem so tasteless? Not attractive whatsoever. What happened in the midst of this pursuit? I mean, he said, he told us, I enjoyed all of those things. That was my reward. I had pleasure from all of the things that I acquired for myself. So what happened? Well, if you look again at the list that the preacher gives, you'll notice that all of the things that he had were not bad things, except for the many wives. Having many wives is, is a bad thing. You're not 
to marry many women. Marriage is one man and one woman together. But the rest of this are good gifts from God. To have money is not a bad thing. To have possessions is not a bad thing. To make gardens, you know, to create forest, if you will, if you, if you have the, the resources to do that, is not a bad thing. These are all good gifts from God. But the preacher did not enjoy them as just gifts. He treated them as something more. No, he was seeking a type of gain from these gifts that they weren't meant to give. I want you to hear that again. He was seeking a gain from these gifts that the gifts were not meant to give. And so even though they were pleasurable at first, like he says, they became bitter in the end and they vanished before His eyes. Because what have we been saying that the core message of this book is? Gift, not gain. Gift, not gain. Every gift that you have, every gift that you enjoy, every gift that you receive pleasure from is a gift from God. You're not meant to have these things to gain something from them. The gift is the gift itself, if that makes sense. You're not supposed to go any further with the gift. God gives you the gift, and you are meant to enjoy it. But as you enjoy it, it's meant to lead you to something else. Namely, someone else, which is God Himself. Every gift you experience is meant to lead you to the person, to the character of God. David picks up on this in Psalm 16, verse 11. He says, speaking of God, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Again, the author of Psalm 73, Asaph, he picks up on this as well. He says in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And that's just two men, that's just two passages in the midst of many that speak of God being the true gift. These men had realized that every gift they had, every good thing in the world, points to the giver. The giver of the gift. So let's think about this for a moment. Food. I know you all love food. Food is tasteful, Because God is delightful. Possessions are pleasurable because the one who gave those pleasures has fullness of joy and fullness of pleasure in His presence. So when you enjoy those things, they are in a way whispering to you, there's more, there's more, there's more. 
And that's why as human beings in this life with these earthly possessions, we will never be satisfied with what we can obtain here, with what we can obtain in this life. You always need more. Because they're pointing you to something else, to someone else, to God Himself. Everything you experience in this life is good, it is pleasurable, it is delightful, it is enjoyable because of God. And at the center of all of this, the focal point of all of this pleasure, of all of this delight, stands the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He stands at the center of all of it. And that's why Paul writes in chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Again, those are two passages in the midst of many that show that the glory of God shines full strength in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to know God? You want to see His glory? You want to see His character, what He is like? You look to Jesus. It shines full strength in His face, in His character. This is why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, he says, But whatever gain I had, so all of the gain that Paul could possibly have, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul will also say in Philippians that to live is Christ and to die is gain. 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 Jesus Christ is gain. If you're not finding it in Him, then there's no gain to be found. Lasting gain, that is. Gain that's going to be with you once this life is over. This is the hard truth that the preacher's talking about here. Because in the next series of verses that we're going to look at, death has been lingering in the midst of all of these things that he's been talking about. Death has been encroaching as the preacher names off all of these things that he sought gain in. He may have gained something, but death is coming. And it's going to snatch it all away. Every gain that you acquire in this world, death takes it all. And that's why he says what he says. He looks at it and he says, why did I even have these things? They're about to be taken from me. For a moment you enjoy them. And then eternity. And what's the profit that you carry over there? So are you enjoying Jesus and all the gifts that you enjoy? Is He your true joy? Do you seek His face? His presence? Is He your greatest gift? Is He your greatest pleasure? 
Is your greatest pleasure found in Jesus? Is it found in Him alone? I want to give the last words to the Lord Jesus Himself where He says in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, speaking to the crowds, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your heart at this morning, people of God? Is it hidden away in Christ? Is your pleasure hidden in Him, in His character? When you delight in the things of the world, do you think of Him? Do you think of His character? If not, then you will end up like the preacher. You may enjoy things in this life, but in the end, they will become bitter to you and there will be no happiness to be found. Death in the end, for the one who does not know Christ, strips away all. But death, for the one who knows Christ, gives you everything. That's the power of the gospel. So may we cling to that. May you cling to that. Father, we come before You and oh, how we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your character, for Your person. And most of all, we thank You for Jesus Christ who shines forth in the midst of all of this. He is the greatest delight. He is the pleasure that all other pleasures point to. And so as we close this morning, as we prepare to begin another week, I pray that You would be with those who are sitting before me. And as they enjoy Your good gifts, may they see those gifts as a reflection of who You are. May they point them to You, O Lord. And may we be as Paul. May we count everything that we gain in this world as a loss so that we can gain Christ. Because in the end, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.